0: listener supported WNYC Studios The Jazz Loft radio
1: series is funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the
2: National Endowment for the Arts The warped doorway to an old industrial building in the heart of New York's wholesale flower district was one of the millions of sounds recorded by Gene Smith
3: hey. Upon
2: entering 821 6th Avenue, starting in 1957, you might be greeted by photographer W Eugene Smith, who rented space there for several years. More than likely, you'd be photographed by him, as pianist Paul Blay was on occasion.
4: He had a remarkable six shooter style. You'd uh, be standing in the hall with him at his loft, and uh, while he was chatting you up and being very attentive and uh, intriguing.
5: Well, thank you. That's very generous.
4: The camera was at his kneecap
2: level, and he was snap, snap, snap.
5: In fact, I don't remember him without a camera.
2: Bassist Steve Swallow was there at times, too. And In
5: my mind's eye, it was the classic Leica camera. He'd just kind of shoot it like a pistol. Just, you know, from the waist, he'd be taking pictures constantly.
2: Smith was also, less obviously, audio-taping nearly everything that happened in the loft, as hundreds of people over the years came through, talked, crashed there, and played music. And there was the remarkable fact that very few people really knew or cared that they were being taped. And that was due in part to Smith's personality.
5: Because he was so obviously a, a man of goodwill and nobody would have thought for a moment that he had any base motives in taping everything that was going on. And, of course, he was a wonderfully (laughs) gregarious host and, you know, eccentric to a fault and encouraging of eccentricity and uh, the prototypical New York artist.
2: But 50 years or so later, it does make one curious about W. Eugene Smith. What were his motives? What was he about? For one thing... He was a famous man.
1: Everybody was aware of Eugene Smith in those days.
2: John Cohen, a musician as well as a leading photographer and teacher, was a New York freelancer then, when Gene Smith had the rarest and best job a photographer could have, staff photographer for Life magazine.
1: I mean, Life magazine was the main form of communication. This is before television hit. And he was one of the the most admired of the photographers.
3: I probably met him in the late
2: 40s. John Cohen's neighbor in Greenwich Village was photographer Robert Frank. He was freelancing too, years before he put together his book, The Americans.
3: I never worked for life. I never, you know... I, I mean, somebody that worked for life or was employed by life was kind of a different class. I mean, you you really had nothing to do with them. As a freelance photographer, just around the streets... I mean, these guys were as good as you could get.
2: Gene Smith had started taking pictures in high school in Wichita, Kansas, where he'd been born in 1918. He continued taking pictures in college. He'd managed to get a work scholarship to Notre Dame, where he was the official school photographer. It is said he ignored pretty much all his academic work, staying up all night in the darkroom. Smith dreamed of working at Life magazine even when he first came to New York in 1937. He freelanced around for a while. By 1939, his pictures were appearing regularly in Life. By 1941, certain people at the magazine were already suspicious of the exacting and rebellious Gene Smith.
1: Now, I'm going to roll back the clock a little bit. If you worked for Life magazine, you took your camera, they gave you the film... You took a picture, they took the film from you, somebody else developed it, somebody else contact printed it, somebody else selected which of the contact prints would be enlarged, somebody else enlarged it then gave it to uh, the people who did a layout, and somebody else wrote a caption under it, and when it came out in the magazine, it was credited to you as the photographer.
2: Not in Gene Smith's case, says Sam Stevenson, author of the book The Jasloff Project. Smith wanted control of his art from his earliest days at life.
0: They would send him out for a two- or three-day assignment to make ten photographs, and he would come back three weeks later with two or three thousand photographs.
2: After a while, he was not just making photos. He was shooting stories, elaborate photo essays that told a story through pictures. His Country Doctor, from 1948, is generally considered the first contemporary photo essay. Robert Frank remembers that Smith shot and overshot to shape these stories.
3: That's why he worked. It's very clear if you have a great amount of photographs, you can choose and really make a very good choice if you have to do with just 15 pictures. There's no choice, so he needed that choice.
2: So naturally he wanted to control the choice. That was part of the process, to print, crop, lay out, and edit the pictures. His son, Pat Smith recalls the battles.
6: They said, well, you know, we've only got three pages to run the story and he'd say, well, I need 11. <laughs> and uh, they'd fight back and forth. I mean, bitter fights. And, uh, you know, they'd end up with seven. <laughs> you know, they'd finally give one way or the other.
2: And Smith's control of his own pictures led to a distinctive printing style.
6: Eugene Smith would take a
1: regular negative and print it slightly darker, let's say, darker than it would normally be. And then Using this bleach, he would highlight the things that he wanted you to see so somebody's whole world could be in shadow and just their cheeks and their forehead would kind of emerge as if there was a spotlight on them. But that's the way he achieved it was through that bleach and he worked very, very carefully at it. Ferrocyanide is called.
2: So he went beyond documentary in a decidedly romantic direction. Of course, Smith had a way of making you believe in him. That was part of it.
6: He could make his eyes twinkle at will. <laughs> Just trying to uh, persuade people to see his side of doing a story. I was there, as, along with a lot of other young photographers, trying to
1: uh, find our way through that photojournalism world. John Cohen. And he was always disgust because he was standing up for something that none of us even
3: thought we had a right to. That was tremendous that he took on the biggest and sort of meanest magazine possible. And, uh, he was right. It, I mean, you can remember these stories.
2: W. Eugene Smith took those same standards to the Pacific in World War II, where he was hired by Ziff Davis and Life as a combat photographer.
4: I didn't realize when I first met Eugene that he'd had his jaws shot off in the war when he was doing all this uh,
2: photography for Life magazine. The late Nancy Overton knew Smith well in the jazz loft years. And I just thought it was a speech impediment. and didn't realize what he had gone through to uh, try to master his speech again as much as he could. At the end of the war, a badly wounded Smith had an idea for a hopeful photograph his son and daughter were young children at the time living in a picturesque new york town up the hudson river
6: the story goes and this may be a complete fabrication
2: pat smith
6: that as he was lying in his bed recovering from his war wounds he would watch his playing in the yard and had this idea for this picture and wanted this first picture back into the civilized world after the war to be a uh, a picture of hope and a great picture. From where his, his bedroom was, where he was lying in bed recovering, he could see this area, and he got out of bed like he wasn't supposed to and uh, rounded us two children up and directed us to walk back and forth through this opening in the tree line into the field behind as he photographed us. And that was a, uh, quite stressful for him because at that time he was using a twin-lens reflex camera, which he had to look down into to photograph, and uh, one of his wounds was a hole through the roof of his mouth into his his sinus cavity. So every time he looked down, his nose was running and and saliva was running out of his nose, and he also had his hand bandaged where they had sewn his fingers back on.
2: The walk to the Paradise Garden, as Smith called it, did turn out to be a great picture and a famous picture of two small children photographed from behind walking through the trees into a sunlit clearing. It closed Edward Steichen's 1955 Family of Man exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. So if you look at the broad outlines of the story, W. Eugene Smith was a phenomenal man, a kind of hero, remarkable gifts, determination, perseverance, passion, wounded in the war. But there is another side, marked by a certain kind of behavior. Delinquent. (laughs) Evident after the war when he settled down to raise a family. We were kind of
6: ran wild, and some of us never got over that. That's a, pretty much the way it was.
2: Smith was always traveling. When he was home, he was always on deadline or just recovering from one. For a time, he left the rearing of children to his wife, Carmen, and then he just left altogether.
0: He really left his family, and he had four kids outside New York City in Croton on Hudson. And he moved into this dilapidated loft building on 6th Avenue in between 28th and 29th Street. He moved down there somewhere around the fifty-seven, fifty-eight era. It was a far
2: cry from his croton on Hudson home. For one thing, it was filled with musicians late into the night. And for another... It was a dump.
6: (laughs) Filled with clutter. I mean, he, he never threw out anything. You know, having gone through depression era, et cetera. Uh, like most people have gone through that era. They never throw anything out, and uh, he made many, 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 many images of each photograph, so there were hundreds of copies of, of the same photograph and thousands of photographs. So there was a lot, plus tapes, cameras, film, etc.
2: He'd also left Life magazine in a bitter dispute over his pictures of Albert Schweitzer, which he believed the magazine had misused.
3: And I guess... Uh, the relationship with life never was enough for him.
2: Robert Frank.
3: As many of the other photographers would have been very happy, but he wanted more. He always wanted more, and so it didn't make any difference how much he would get. He wanted more. He wanted more pictures of more opportunities, more respect. And by
2: 1957, there he was, holed up in the loft, shooting and taping everything that went on there. Sam Stevenson.
0: People uh, in the photography world thought that he had lost his mind when he wired this loft building from the sidewalk to the fifth floor and made 1,740 reels of tape.
2: That's roughly 4,000 hours worth. And bass player Bill Crow remembers that for Smith, it was serious business.
1: He was just kind of always around in the background. He didn't talk much. He just listened and made his plans for uh, how to record this better. Zoo Sims called in Lamont Cranston because he was the shadow. He didn't say anything.
5: And tape recorders were cumbersome and awkward and tapes broke and machines were constantly misfiring, which made Gene something of a mad scientist, too. I mean, he was constantly tinkering and fixing.
2: Real-to-real magnetic tape was, after all, a relatively new thing to America. It had been invented by the Germans just before World War II, and the technology was held very closely through the war years. But after the war, it became available to everyone, or to all countries, and um, these reel-to-reel tape recorders were sold in several ways, and one of them was as a documentary tool. Brown University broadcast history professor Susan Smullian. So it makes perfect sense that Smith... He was exactly the perfect consumer for this product, uh, someone who wanted to document the world in photographs and now could add another uh, level or a layer to his documenting.
1: He was always putting in more microphones and things. Bill Crow. <laughs> One time we were standing in there and uh, the bit of a drill came up through the floor where he was getting ready to insert a microphone <laughs> so that he could get a better pickup on the piano or something, I don't know what it
2: was. The loft also gave Smith a built-in alternate family, you might say, Pat Smith.
6: I would say he was lonely most of the time, but he wasn't alone. There were different people there constantly, so there were different viewpoints, people he could argue points with, people that were that were interesting. It was an escape from reality, I would guess, if nothing else. But having some place to escape to like
4: that, I think, was important.
2: The late Jimmy Stevenson lived in a section of the building for a while. The situation is enormously tense. But it really wasn't
4: until the missile crisis that I actually started to get her face with him. Because he was a bit of a recluse. Yeah, I, uh, the night of the Cuban Missile Crisis, I went downstairs, and that's where I really got to know Gene. I said, look, Gene, I said, well, are would to be toasted at any time. And he says, yeah, I know. And that wasn't so encouraging. So I said, well, until then, uh, maybe we could just wrap. And he says, yeah. He says, I... I've been listening to this Miles Davis sketches of Spain and he says the damn thing is nothing but a ripoff from Rodrigo. So that'll kind of give you a sense of gene.
6: <laughs> well, it was a community. And uh, it was his community. Whether he felt like he was the king of that community or a citizen,
2: I'm not sure. He just kept those machines whirring along and drummer Ron Free barely noticed.
4: Well, I knew that He always had it running, but that's the thing. When it's always running, you you, you know, you forget about it after a while. So it just wasn't even
2: a factor. This is one of so many jam sessions. It's Ron Free, Bob Brookmeyer, Dave McKenna, and Bill Takas. (laughs) ¶¶
4: Gene was the same with his photography. I don't remember ever seeing him taking pictures, and yet there's all kind of pictures that he took. So he was like a stealth photographer.
2: But what would you be sizing him up for, and what did the techniques mean? When there was no one jamming at the loft, or sometimes even if there were musicians there playing, Smith made elaborate recordings off television and radio. The pond
5: lay near at hand. I stopped and sat on an upturned stump and let the sun beat down on me while I swept the surface of the water with my glasses.
0: When you listen I to these things those. that he recorded, the operas, yeah, the is conversations the with Vietnam James Baldwin, Baldwin Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Shakespeare being read over the radio, Walter Cronkite reading Cold War news, and on and on.
5: At once. This, of... this is John Clark.
0: You realize that this is a man who was driven by a compulsion and an obsession that transcends really I think the journalistic work that he's most famous for OR9 OR9
1: 7200 7200
6: thank you very much you're welcome
2: on tape reel 264 smith records his own conversation mitchell's office is mike there what a place he calls his publisher, trying to sort out problems he's been having with his book contract. trying to
6: find out, one, who my enemies are there, and two... Who your enemies are? and two, that I, to let it be known very frankly that although I'm going to fulfill my present contract, they're not going to get any other books out of me whatsoever.
2: Gone on this occasion is the twinkle in the eye. I don't know who the hell
6: ever had this thing anyway. It's true, I did not get Still present is
2: the somewhat slurred speech, the effect of his war injury. And plaguing his life for some time by then were unfortunate combinations of drugs and alcohol, sometimes to relieve the physical pain of his injuries, sometimes to counteract depression. So to hear his friends tell it, Jean Smith was reclusive and friendly, lonely and never alone, careful and extravagant, genial and depressive and, of course, obsessive and fiercely committed. With all the contradictions and inconsistencies in the Gene Smith story, those qualities are the thread. Photographer Robert Frank.
3: He was an astonishing man. His passion and his belief in whatever he was doing, it's unusual. I don't... since then I haven't met anybody that comes near that kind of belief in what he does and what he should do and... the effect of his work, I mean, he believed that it would change the world maybe, but, you know, nobody I think today of the younger people, things like that, I haven't met them.
2: That he applied this extraordinary passion and energy to recording in pictures and sound the life in a beat-up New York building is a compelling mystery. But it can be seen as very much in keeping with his time, as a new aesthetic was planting itself in America.
5: He was part of a wider sense in various artistic communities of enfranchising sound, enfranchising gestures by photographing them loosely and recording them continually.
2: W.T. Lehman is the author of Deliberate Speed, a study of American culture in the 1950s.
5: I gather he wasn't uh, publicizing what he was doing. He just had faith that sometime we would catch up with what he was about. And um, that seems to me what a lot of these people were doing, they just, they were out there. Allen Ginsberg talked about this once and he said, well, we're just making art for our friends. It was a turning away from an official popularity, believing in a kind of, the future of a personal popularity.
3: He wanted to reveal something that is private and inside him and and, uh, has nothing to do with photography. Maybe it was impossible to do that. Maybe it had to be done with, uh, as a music or words to complement photography. So maybe he felt that.
2: We can't know what he felt, even though he left behind 40,000 loft photographs and thousands of hours of loft tapes. What we do know is that he was there, and that may be what the jazz loft project was for him. Just a way to say, I was here. I knew all about this place. Now, you figure it out. This is the Jazz Loft radio series. In the next episode, The Tapes. A closer look at some of the music and conversation taped by Smith in his loft, including an encounter with a police officer.
5: What are you got the tape recorder
4: going for? Well, because my cat was chasing a mouse. And I was recording the cat chasing a mouse.
2: That's coming up in Episode 3.
4: What happened? The goddamn mouse
2: got away. Thanks to Sam Stevenson and to the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke. For WNYC's Jazz Loft Radio Series, I'm Sarah Fishko.
1: This series was funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts.